Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast from the Aga Khan Museum, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture. There's a new generation that has a very unique perspective to how they see themselves as young Muslims in the modern world. I am this wide-eyed girl. I'm like, I want it all. I want to experience it all. Everyone has a story. Sometimes you just have to find out what it is. Like the poem that inspires this podcast, The Guest House, by Sufi poet Jalaluddin Rumi, we're talking to people who seek meaning and joy in work and life, regardless of what the day brings. Today, East African retro pop musician, Alsara. If you believe in what you're doing and you know how to talk about it, you can teach people to almost like anything. <laughs> you just got to believe that it's really worth liking and not be intimidated by people being confused at first. Alsara takes the music of her homeland and blends it with a modern sensibility. She was born in Sudan before fleeing with her family to Yemen as a child and then later to the United States, but she carried the music of her past with her. She eventually settled in Brooklyn and became both a scholar and a performer of East African music, most notably a style called Nubian music, which has its roots on the borderlands of modern-day Egypt and Sudan. She's toured around the world and worked on a number of projects, including releasing two albums with her spectacular band, Alsara and the Nubatones. Alsara and the Nubatones is the kind of band you have to experience live. They are exuberance and life personified. Alsara joined me to speak about finding her sound and why we carry music with us. And as we're talking about sounds, you'll hear some of the sounds of New York in the background of this interview. Alsara, uh, you know, sound and music surrounds you. And I'm wondering, when you arrived to the United States at, at 12 years old, how did the country that you arrived in sound to you? You know, it sounded very alien. Because, you know, with music, a lot of times we think of music as just like the recording or the track or the product. But when you're listening to music, you're often consuming it in the environment it's also in. So your music has the background of the cars, of the azan, of the beeping, of the this, of the kind of sounds of the place. So when we first landed in the States, we landed in Boston for about three or four months. And the sounds of Boston were so alien to me. The sounds of the wind sounded different, the smell of the air. The way I experience sounds is very deeply tied to sight and scent for me. And so they all kind of become an amalgamation together of one experience. And so for me, the smell of, of the wet, salty air and the way it dampened, the way sound would try to reflect off of the cement 
was so different than the kind of buildings I was around that would were made from, more from mud or made more from brick. And so the way they even reflected sound back at you was different. So everything was really intense and the language was different. And it was interesting because it felt like because everything was so alien, it became like a cacophony of sound around me and smells. And it actually really isolated me into a very small, like I isolated myself out of it into my own world, you know, to just take breaks from the foreignness. And then a couple of months after that, we moved to Amherst, Massachusetts, which is a really small, small college town in Western Massachusetts, which was the most provincial place I've ever lived. Because <laughs> um, I was a city girl. I came from a huge city. And so I was just like, why are there cows here? <laughs> <laughs> so I had, a, um, I, had to re- I had to learn nature. <laughs> oh, it's just good. You describe the sounds that you heard arriving into the United States so evocatively, and you speak about having grown up in a bustling metropolis of a city. So I'm wondering what kind of musical landscape and soundscape did you grow up around? What did home sound like? As time passes, your recollection of things shifts and changes with the new knowledges that you acquire. So now looking back as I am today to it, I realize my home environment was extremely musical. I grew up listening, you know, you, all day there is the sound of the azan punctuating your day. And every, every mosque has a different muazzin. So I grew up listening to different kinds of, of sounds. And in Sudan, the azan is very different than it is in Cairo, very different than it is in Yemen. So I grew up, you know, surrounded by mosques and listening to that all day. And then my mom loved music. So, and she loved a diverse array of sounds. So I grew up listening to everything from Bollywood to Fayrouz to Sudanese local musicians like Mustafa Seed Ahmed, who are part of like a very leftist movement. I was also really blessed to have extremely politically conscious and active immediate family and there was a lot of books and music and poetry in the house. And it was expected that we become fluent in a lot of it. <laughs> just in casual conversation, not even like sit down and study. It was just like, oh, you should know this because it's fun knowledge. There was long periods of time in Sudan where it was really hard to acquire music outside of the household in my generation's time. And so already before that, we already came from households that were singing call and response songs are very normal it's part of the pop sounds and so hanging out with your girls and singing was great and weddings are our clubs like we have a wedding season (laughs) so we prepare for the wedding season (laughs) and you end up by default just kind of picking up a lot of music and musical knowledge becomes a part of the general education. And one of the big unfortunate things about the institutionalization of, in, of education through this capitalistic perspective is, is that it alienated a lot of different ways of passing knowledge on. Being educated does not mean you need to be in an institution. You can be an extremely educated person with a lot of knowledge and never have finished high school. And I grew up around that. So for me, music, it was always in there. But the idea of becoming a musician was never an acceptable thing in my household. In the sense <laughs> of like, why? You only do that if you're not smart. <laughs> Even though you, you really can't. You can't be stupid and be a musician. You really can't. Like, 
But they don't know that. <laughs> Alsara, you you had to leave the Sudan at some point, and it began you on this kind of incredible journey to Yemen, and as you said, eventually to the United States. I kind of wonder what were the songs and the sounds that Alsara carried with her through this journey, which at times I know you've described elsewhere as harrowing. You were displaced. You were looking for a place to land. What accompanies you when you're on that journey? What accompanied me was a box of tapes. <laughs> I had a little box of tapes that I brought because I, I had a big collection when we lived in Yemen, but the way we left, we left very suddenly. And so we had just kind of like one bag between the four of us. Um, and then we had some people send us stuff from the house. I didn't get all my tapes that I had collected, but I got a couple of them that were really my favorite. So I had Wasta Daira and the, the version that Muhammad Munir had, the whole album, with Hadiya Talsam. Uh, Wasta Daira was originally by Muhammad Wardi. And to me, like, that tapes really perfectly straddled my cultural amalgamation because it also really took me leaving home to understand that even at home, I was also strange because I kept trying to describe home and even when I was trying to describe it to other Sudanese people, I realized that, oh, my household is extremely mixed. Being Nubian is, and especially because when you're in it and in Sudan, there is this movement towards nationalization. And so we're all ones, we're all just Sudanese. And this idea of trying to move away from your tribalism, because tribalism is the root of all of our conflict. When I actually think nationalism is the root of all of our conflict, because to me, Tribalism is an inherent part of human development and evolution. And so coming out of that was finally when I realized that, oh no, my culture is straddles the two fluidly. And then realizing that I've always been from a people in between lands. And then realizing that I'm from a people in between lands who've already had an internal displacement actually eased the pressure of this displacement because it really... It allowed me to realize that I come from a long line of people that survived this. This is not a new experience, and I'm not alone in it. And realizing you're not alone in something is actually really empowering, I think. And once I had that realization, I started to also look all around me at all the other immigrants around me and realizing we all have this in common. And I started to really align my identity more with immigrant than I did with like, I will always be Sudanese. I was born Sudanese. I'm going to die Sudanese. It's how I navigate through all the different experiences. But being an immigrant who's been displaced in Sudanese is also its own unique pocket of that. So with those tapes, I had, you know, Muhammad Munir's tape for Wustad Daira. A year after that, I acquired a bunch of other music because I was trying to replace my collection. And um, the public library, oh, my God. God bless the public library. Everybody support your public library. Get a subscription. Give them money. I love them so much. I learned English at the public library. I learned about music at the public library because we didn't have money for any of that stuff. And my public library was mm, top notch. It, like They had a huge listening section, which apparently nobody used because all these rich college kids had their own CD players. But I was like, there's a free listening station here. <laughs> you know, you, you talk about the public library and I am... I am brought back to moments in my own childhood of long Saturday and Sunday afternoons of my mom taking us to the public library and us mm -hmm. sitting at the listening station. But you're so right for immigrant families 
who need it, right? That space for exploration and learning. The public library and free was free babysitting. Yeah, totally, totally. My mom like my, used to. My mom should just leave us at the library. She's like, don't yes. go anywhere. <laughs> she'd come back six hours later. You, you are ab- absolutely, Elsara. I was about to say the same thing. It was. It really was. Parents would leave us at the library, and we'd read and listen to stuff the whole day. And you're right. When she'd come back, the back of the car was filled with groceries. She'd been to the farmer's market. She'd run all of her errands. And the funny thing was, Osara, we still didn't want to leave. We're me like, too. another hour. Oh another hour. Give me, me another too. hour. We would, we would stay until closing. I was like, can you just pick us up at closing time? We know. I was like, and because I was like, I want to finish this book. She's like, bring it home. I was like, I already maxed out my limit. <laughs> And then as I spent more time in the library, I became obsessed with the idea of trying to figure out what does your country's music sound like? Because people would ask me that. And I grew up listening to so many different kinds of music. I hadn't really made the connection as a child that each land has its own sound. I didn't get that part at all. I was like, well, we have them all in the house. Why wouldn't they just be all everywhere? And then I realized no one ever heard our music outside of us. And so I became obsessed with the idea of trying to translate what it means to sound Sudanese. What does that mean? And so I started to look at other countries. So from like when I was a teenager, basically, like around 13, 14, I started kind of doing that nose dive into the ethnomusicology world of like trying to figure out what different folk sounds meant. How do you document stories in that? And that brought me full circle back to the Nubian songs of return. After college, I really came back to them in a way, like a deliberate way to study them. Because I was just like, what's coded here? And what's coded here was the same thing that I found in that Solidad sound from Cabo Verde, from a lot of other diasporas around the world. And I was like, this is diaspora music, actually, the Nubian songs of the return. This is not Nubian traditional sounds, it's diaspora sounds. And you can hear it in the arrangements, the choices of words. And once I started to realize that it kind of liberated me because it's like there's this obsession with purity in the music world and in general in America of making things into very hard categories with no bleeds outside of them and making people into flat, digestible things. And humans aren't like that. And understanding that at the root of all tradition is fusion is the most liberating thing. Because then you can really realize that innovation is an inherent part of culture. Culture is made up. We have to really keep saying that to ourselves. Culture is made up. So you are an active participant in the making of that. And that's why you need to be extremely conscious of how you consume culture and how you regurgitate culture. You know, you can't just be in with a trend without knowing its roots, its history, how you ended up where you ended up. I mean, you could, but that's on you. It was in Brooklyn where Alsara started her band, Alsara and the Nubatones. 
Here's a bit of the song Habibi Tal from their album, Silt. Tell me about meeting your musical collaborator, Ramiel Asser, and the emergence of, of Alsara as not just a musician, but Alsara, the leader of one of the coolest bands ever. You know, it was so organic because when I moved to New York, I was a freelance musician. So you could just, you know, I would work on random different gigs, anyone who needed a singer who could do stuff in Arabic. Um, and I'd gotten hired by this band that was working on a project of Tarab music from Zanzibar in Kenya. And the project was in Swahili. And I don't speak Swahili, but it's got a lot of Arabic in it and some Bantu. And so I decided to learn how to sing in Swahili. So I became the lead singer for the band. And I think I was okay. But Rami was one of the drummers the band leader had hired at a certain point. And Haig Menukian, who was the original Oud player in the Nubatones, may he rest in peace, was the Oud player there. Um, he's the one who'd actually pulled me into the project because I was still quite young and just moved to New York. And I really didn't know how to do this musician thing because I knew I didn't want to do pop and I knew I didn't really want to sing in English. And so there wasn't really like a route left open to me that I could see. And so I just kind of was puttering around, like trying to work in different projects. So Hike tapped me into for that project, then Rami joined the project, then Rami and I became really good friends. Rami's an incredible human being, one of the most brilliant minds I've ever met, and a total nerd. And that's my favorite kind of people. So <laughs> we would have these monthly hangouts that we called the Supper Club, where we basically take turns cooking for each other and having a full-on nerd fest about one subject or another with like examples of sound, reading paragraphs, looking up things in the bibliography, just hardcore nerding out. And at the time when we first started this, Rami was working on his master's project, uh, which was about agriculture in the role of modernity in Egypt post the high dam because the building of the high dam really affected agriculture greatly, especially because a lot of that was in the Nubian regions. So he, you know, he was talking about that and him being a musician already, also on a drummer, he was talking about the change of sounds from pre-high dam to post-high dam, from the choice of instruments to the choice of lyrics to the rise of the songs of return, which really became their own genre within Nubian music. And they grew up in urban centers that had high concentrations of Nubians. So mostly in Cairo and in Khartoum. But really predominantly in Cairo, the scene was concentrated there. Because in Cairo, Nubians are visibly different also than the rest of Egyptians. And it reminds Egyptians of the fact that Egypt used to be black. So we grew up there, and so Rami and I would talk about it a lot. And he would talk about it just from an academic perspective, and I would bring in my perspective as growing up listening to it and really not separating it mentally in my head. They all were continuity of the same traditional things. And so having that conversation over and over, and like we basically both were like, oh, you know, it'd be really nice if we could trace this in a concert. I was like, dude, this isn't just a concert. This is a band. And he was like, I don't have time for a band. I have a job. I'm in 18 different bands. And he just like panicked. I was like, I have mad time. I have mad time. I, let me just handle this. I was like, would you show up to rehearsals if I just arranged everything? He's like, 
yeah, I was like, great. That's all. <laughs> I love the fact that the sound that eventually coalesced around Alsara and the Nubatones was something you called East African retro pop. And you've talked about that and you've talked about this Nubian music, which just seems like, as you're describing it, like feels like I'm on the edge of a universe of sound, right? I feel like I'm on the I'm on the edge of all kinds of discoveries about to happen. How do you describe your sound? I feel like it's something you really need to experience. Most sound is best experienced um, because words are inherently going to reduce it. So like for me, I, I chose to create a genre and a label because I didn't find one that fit me and I was not comfortable with being consumed under somebody else's banner of what I am. I felt like if you want to consume this, you need to understand this. And if you don't want to understand this, then you don't get to consume this. And I was always happy with that because I, in my mind, my idea of success was never stardom. It was never pop. My idea of success was making an authentic change in the way someone heard themselves and others. And that could be eight people, and that's fine. But, you know, retro pop I picked because we don't make modern pop, but we make older pop. And people also need to remember that traditional music is just really old pop. I love that. Like, <laughs> and it was so good that you really honestly didn't even need you to make it last forever. And I'm just like, that's how good those melodies were. Why wouldn't you want to draw from that? Those are the classics. And so for me, it was just like, I wanted to clarify that I'm not also doing traditional music in the way it would be practiced because... I know how that should be practiced, and there is some brilliant practitioners doing it, and I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to do that. I am inspired by traditions because everyone is. And the idea that Western music and all its formats does not come from a tradition, it's part of that weird centering the West thing where everyone else is ethnic and they are the only ones who are norm. And it's like, no, you're ethnic too. <laughs> like you're just not as knowledgeable about it for some reason so it seems you're ignorant <laughs> but, but you know that's between you and your lord um <laughs> you know i i'm sorry you you bring this kind of new i don't even want to call it fusion i want i want to say this new recension right this new moment of music to you start bringing it to audiences in new york and i wonder how in those early days did audiences respond to you? The singing is in Arabic and other languages. There's all these interesting musical instruments, the oud, the dumbuck, you know, the singing, the, the synths, the, the piano, all of these things being played and the sound coming out that probably a lot of people had never heard before. What was the reaction of folks as they heard your sound? You know, at first it was confusion because it's like, even though... In New York is a very special place because it's so diverse in its musical scene. People had seen the dumbek or seen the oud or seen the bass. They'd never seen them put together doing these kinds of sounds. And they were used to hearing them all in like very specific Arabic-centered, specifically Turkish-centered sounds, actually. 
So anyways, then used to hearing the Arabic scene, quote unquote, is used to practicing that very specific repertoires in New York. So people were very confused at first and they're like, is this Arabic music or African music? I was like, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit of both actually. <laughs> so um, it took them a second, but God bless New Yorkers, yo, they're ready to go in on anything. If it's good, <laughs> they were like, okay, we'll bite. <laughs> so... It took a while. It was a very slow uphill battle, you know, like um, in small rooms. And I was lucky to have still experienced the last tendrils of the New York small music room scene. That was really an amazing opportunity for a lot of musicians when they first come up, having these small rooms with owners that are really, really into music and into new projects. After the collapse of the major labels, these kind of venues almost became like their own version of A&R on the local level. You know, like allowing musicians to come and test out new things, new bands get created there. And so, you know, places like Barbes, especially who like, you know, could not survive. I mean, a lot of them didn't even survive the economic crash of 2008. And then COVID came and just kind of destroyed that. But a lot of those venues were really key in my upbringing as a local musician. And because the rooms are really small, you really get to practice training your audience. People want to learn when they come to things. It's you no know, not to have a class, but like they're down to have a good time. And the magic of music is that when people listen, they suspend a lot of things in their frontal lobes, you know, and so they end up actually being less judgmental than they ever could be. They're more receptive to information and they're willing to roll with you. If you believe in what you're doing and you know how to talk about it, you can teach people to almost like anything. <laughs> You just gotta believe that it's really worth liking and not be intimidated by people being confused at first. You're someone who engages, as you've talked about, in a lot of different musical traditions. And so I am interested at this particular moment, what's inspiring you right now? You know, I'm feeling um, recently really inspired by a lot of cumbia and the way cumbia is moving. And I, I go through phases with cumbia where I, like, I become extremely obsessed for a while and then I move on and then I become really obsessed again. Explain to us what cumbia is. <laughs> So cumbia is a kind of music from Latin America. People fight over where it started. Peruvian insist it started in Peru. Colombians insist it started in Colombia. <laughs> and Mexicans are in and down for this fight as well. They're like, it's ours. Venezuelans love to put their two cents in on it. So um, I don't really like to get involved in this fight. Seems like a local fight. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it has different, like, um, hints depending on where it comes from so cumbia is like uh, it's like a tongue cut a tongue cut a tongue cut it's like a slow six eight maybe like i would say it's like a slow six eight with like a gate so it almost feels like bizarre cowboy music from latin america <laughs> <laughs> every time i listen to cumbia i feel like i'm riding a very strange horse <laughs> or a donkey like <laughs> I love that description. <laughs> this is kind of how I feel about it. I was like, it's like donkey cowboys, you know, because <laughs> the gait is a little bit different. It's got a trot, but you're not in the same, like, you know, bluegrass trot. It's like, and so 
you really hear the environment in a lot of sounds, the music that come out of places. I'm going through this obsession with cumbia recently, I think, because there's so many really amazing Latin, like alt Latino artists that are coming out over the last two years that are really celebrating the folk traditions that they're coming from and doing their own thing with it. And I enjoy being able to go see local cumbia bands and like dancing around. And, you know, it's really interesting because with the pandemic, what ended up staying true is all like the local folky things, you know, like the bands that would busk outside. And so you go and hang out on the block and dance. <laughs> and so it's kind of making it uh, a return for me. So I'm listening to a lot of psychedelic cumbia from Peru, um, compilations from 63 to 82 kind of vibes. Yeah, a lot of compilations from that time period. <laughs> I love it, Sarah. I, I can't wait to hear how that seeps in and starts to kind of interface with your musical e ecosystem. And we hear the Numatones bring us some bring some cumbia vibes. There's a rehearsal coming up next week where this might very awesome. much happen. Because I was like, they're 6'8 versus our 6'8. Let's take it. <laughs> I, 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 I watch, watch the space. Um, Alsara, before we before we wrap up, I have to tell you that, you know, people who I have spoken to about Alsara and the Nubatones and folks who've gone to your concerts will often describe those concerts as spiritual experiences. They are present with you and your music, but they are transported. And for you to have that impact on not only people's bodies, but people's hearts. I want to ask you about, about your heart, Sarah. What's moving your spirit? And what do you think it is that we can hear that movement? Because we're experiencing something and it's very special. You know, you are experiencing it with me. I, this is what I was like, I, I'm very, I've always been very bad about it communicating my feelings in words like the, the fewer the words the better i really believe in that that's prophetic say like that you know the prophet said it i believe a long time ago um you know the less the words the better you know keep it wise keep it cute <laughs> um but songs becomes as a result the place where i really navigate that and like honestly i write songs because it i don't have access to free therapy <laughs> like so <laughs> That's why I write songs. I'm really sorry. Y'all have to go through it with me. <laughs> um, I try to be as honest as possible in my songs. And, and when I'm honest in my songs, I'm not reaching for a, a didactic message that I'm trying to give you. I'm reaching for that gray, complicated space of a feeling that is many feelings at once. That to me is what you write songs about because you can't really put it into one thing or the other. And my heart, my heart loves the gray zone. <laughs> I am complicated. My capacity for feeling is very multidimensional. I can have opposing emotions at the same time very strongly <laughs> and they will live harmoniously inside my heart. <laughs> and. And I think a lot of us are that way, actually. And I think we live, though, in a world that's so obsessed with, again, labels, definitions, binary oppositions that are your taught can never coexist, that we have to constantly repress one side of ourselves or the other to be able to deal with the general social hypocrisy of the system we live in. And so 
what I hope to do is when we're in that room together is that we can all vibrate on that level of at least not lying to ourselves. Who or what would you like to welcome into your guest house? Well, I've spent the last two years welcoming grief and sadness into my guest house. You know, and I've welcomed them very joyously. I was waiting for them. So I was like, come in. I think now, though, it's time to welcome um, light and mania, actually, into my guest house. I really love mania. I think she's very (laughs) under-celebrated. She gets stuff done. (laughs) And so I want her to hang out for a little bit, get stuff done. And then when we need a breast, we we might ask her to leave. But (laughs) till then, she's welcome. Alsara, this has been blessed. Thank you so much for being on This Being Human. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to This Being Human. You can find links to some of Alsara's music in the show notes. This Being Human is produced by Antica Productions in partnership with TVO. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton, with production assistance from Abi Raheja. Our executive producer is Lisa Gabriel, mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson, original music by Boombox Sound. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Katie O'Connor is TVO's senior producer of podcasts. And Lori Few is the executive for digital at TVO. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum, one of the world's leading institutions that explores the artistic, intellectual, and scientific heritage of Muslim civilizations around the world. For more information about the museum, go to www.agakhanmuseum.org. The museum wishes to thank Nader and Shabin Muhammad for their philanthropic support to develop and produce This Being Human.